Turn with me, if you will, one more time to Nehemiah, the last chapter, chapter 13. For those of you who are visiting today, we come to the end of a study of Nehemiah that's taken us six months to the day. We started the first Sunday of June, and here we are six months later. Though you haven't been with us all the study, I'll try to say enough about what's going on that you can understand how it relates to the things that you haven't heard, haven't been here before. How might we expect Nehemiah to end? Those of you who have been with us for six months on this, perhaps it will end with a great note of victory and success, for there has been great success, you know. The walls around Jerusalem were rebuilt in a record time, and the whole community of God's people were revitalized and reorganized. But then again, this is not a storybook tale. This is reality, and reality is seldom so pretty. So the book does not end, they live happily ever after, as we might wish. The end comes with uh, some hard words fitting for their situation. Before we get ahead of ourselves, a lot has happened since our last study last week. Nehemiah had spent 12 years in Jerusalem rebuilding the walls and then being the governor. And then between chapter 12 and chapter 13, he left. And he went back to Persia to serve the king of Persia uh, for a while. We don't know exactly how well, how long. It was at least six months, probably a few years. And now in this chapter, we hear what he found when he came back to Jerusalem. And he found that the people seemed to have forgotten everything he taught them. Nehemiah was shocked and angered. And sometimes we need to be shocked in order to get our attention. Hopefully this passage will do for us what we hope it did for the people of Jerusalem. Get our attention before it's too late. So the chapter has just one great truth. And we put it two words. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. Kids, if you don't know what that means, it means look out or be on the alert. Keep watch. Those kind of words. For what happened to these people could happen to us. You probably have all heard the illustration of the little uh, truism that you can boil a frog to death if you put him in cool water and slowly bring the temperature up until it's boiling. Though he could easily jump out at any moment, he won't. For he doesn't sense any danger. That's a lot like what can happen to us. We slowly forget important things and tolerate changes in the spiritual climate until our very souls are threatened while we remain now unconcerned. So here we're called to be vigilant. And we see that in regard to five specific things in this chapter. So you can say this is a one-point sermon, or maybe it's a five-point sermon. It doesn't matter. There's five subpoints of the one point, nonetheless. I'm going to read that. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read it in sections and talk about each one of these as we go. So let me read the first nine verses. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call, down, to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were foreign descent. Before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. 
And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, I was not at Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I took, put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And we'll stop there. First truth here. Be vigilant. For God's enemies never quit. Be vigilant, for God's enemies never quit. Here, these first few verses are about Tobiah. You who have been with us through this study, do you remember Tobiah? He's one of the ones who most opposed Nehemiah while they were building the wall. Tobiah is the one who mocked with the clever little saying, if even a little fox should jump up on this wall, it would crumble. The last thing we saw about Tobiah was back in chapter 6, where he was hiring a false prophet to trick Nehemiah into desecrating the temple. And at the same time, uh, uh, conducting a letter-writing campaign against Nehemiah, writing letters back to the king. Tobiah is not a good guy. But look where he is now. Tobiah, through his family connections, has arranged for a suite of rooms and lives in the temple. According to verses 1 to 3, because the Ammonites and Moabites had acted wickedly when Israel was in the wilderness, God had commanded that Israel separate from them. But here, though Tobiah is an Ammonite, there's no longer any concern for separation from the wicked like God commanded. Instead, they've cleared out some storage space, and, 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 and they made Tobiah a little apartment right there in the temple, right in the center of the religious life that he had so long undermined. Be vigilant. God's enemies never quit. Time does more than just heal. Time erodes. If we're not diligent, the, the, the enemy will wear us down until we find ourselves accepting things that we once abhorred. You know the old warning, if you let the camel's nose in the tent, after a while you'll have a camel in bed with you. That's what we're talking about. That's what happened here. So let's apply it to ourselves. Could it be that because of the persistence of a God's enemies who never quit, we have succumbed to things that we would never have thought about doing years ago? We sit in front of our televisions and are entertained by vulgarity that once would have made sailors blush. We think nothing of it. Our society condones premarital sex and adultery and homosexuality and abortion and infanticide and euthanasia. And it's just a political issue. Indeed, much of the Christian church carries the banner of toleration for those things. Everyone's God-given right to do what they want, to be what they want. Could it be that the evil one has worn us down? until we will tolerate most anything except radical holiness, which we all know is totally intolerable. And like the frog in the pot has come to feel so comfortable 
It's like soaking in a hot tub. I call us to vigilance, for God's enemies never quit. Therefore, God's servants must not quit. Perhaps it's time to clean house, as Nehemiah did, to throw the enemy and throw out the enemy and fumigate the rooms, to radically purify our lives from the presence and the comforts of sin. I don't know what that means to you, but I bet you do. That's the first truth. Keep reading verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, into the storehouse. I put Shemaiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and, Le- Le- and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Metaniah, their, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Second truth here. Be vigilant. For God's work is easily neglected. Be vigilant, for God's work is easily neglected. Anyone, anyone feel a financial pinch these days? How would you like a nice pay raise? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, here's what you do. Stop giving to the Lord. It's an automatic pay raise. What an idea. What a windfall. Think of the money, hundreds of dollars perhaps, maybe thousands of dollars. Think of the spending power you would gain. That's what the people in Jerusalem did. They just stopped giving. They stopped the tithe, they stopped the first fruit offerings, they stopped the provisions for the temple. And what happened? Well, the temple kind of limped along, got around all right. The Levites uh, had to get an outside job because there wasn't enough money to pay them. They became part-time at the temple. And no one seemed to mind that much. Plus, these were hard times, and why should the Levites have it so easy to just minister in the temple? They need to be out working in the fields, too. But when Nehemiah returned, he was not so amused. What are you doing, he said? Why are the Levites out there in the fields? Specifically in verse 11, why is the house of God being neglected? Those might sound like familiar words to you. Those are the exact words with which the people swore an oath to the Lord back in chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. Thus they promised to assume responsibility for the supplies, the wood, the offerings, the tithes, everything necessary to sustain the ministry of the temple. But it got old, you know, and things were hard and there wasn't enough stuff and they let it slip and when they needed the money, the Lord's work didn't seem so important. And the frog in the pot is getting sleepy as the water gets warmer. So do we even need to hear this? We don't have any Levites. Plus your pastor makes a lot of money, gets paid on time all the time. What does this have to do with us? Well, the principle is still valid. Be vigilant for God's work is easily neglected. Do you remember your first worship service ever? The first time you went to a Bible study? Remember when your faith was brand new and your heart was warmed and your eyes were open to see wonders that you'd never imagined? Remember those days how you would have given anything, done anything, sacrificed anything for the Lord? We need to constantly rekindle that first love of Christ, that pristine 
devotion. For God's work is easily neglected. We all face hard times. How do we respond? I call us to be diligent in our faithfulness, to not neglect the work of the Lord. By the way, this is the beauty of proportional giving. That's what a tithe is. When we prosper, the first portion is great, and we give with joy. And when we're having difficulty, the first portion is meager, but we give it with joy and faithfulness. Either way, we need to be vigilant, for God's work is easily neglected. Keep reading verse 15 to 22. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem, Before the Sabbath, I ordered the the doors to be shut and not opened again until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the, the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Third truth here, be vigilant. God still owns your time. God still owns your time. Here we return to discussion of time. Time is such a precious commodity. You know, we might get more money, but you will never get more time. Time is life. Time is irreplaceable. And because of that, we can assess where our hearts are by looking at how we spend our time. And the God who made it that way claims one day of seven for himself. Wow, that's a lot. How am I going to get all the important things done when I'm working six days and everybody else is working seven? How am I going to make a living? Plus, what what on earth am I going to do for a whole day? It was exactly the thinking of the people in Jerusalem. But it hadn't always been that way. When they saw the Lord's glory and his word, they had been zealous to serve him. They vowed to not get caught up in the rat race of the world around them, sacrificing the Lord's day. They vowed to be a different kind of people, a people set apart to the Lord. But times were hard, and it just wasn't time for the Lord like that anymore. And then come along came Nehemiah. Notice how he reasons in verse 17 and 18. He does not argue, you know, you need rest. You need to take a day off. It's healthy. That's not how he argued. Rather, he understood that what we need more than rest is God's favor. And their desecration of the Sabbath was an affront to God. And because of that, judgment had come in the past and judgment would come, would come again. In other words, this was not about their needs the way we so often talk about rest. It was about God's holiness. And folks, 
Though what it means to keep the Sabbath is somewhat different for us now than it was for them. The truth, this truth still stands. God claims your time. So be vigilant. Have you ever noticed that you never accidentally find time for worship and fellowship with God? Either we give, give it priority and protect the time, or it never happens. Or am I the only one that's that way? So do you have time for God? Do you take time? Is the Lord's day the Lord's day or is it the Lord's hour? Get out of here as quick as we can. And it's Sunday morning and the frog in the pot is sleeping in with the warmth of the hot tub massaging his body. Keep reading verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or you're not to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful? To our God by marrying foreign women? Fourth, call to vigilance. Be vigilant, for God is jealous for his children. God is jealous for his children. We talked about this only a few weeks ago, and here we go again. God forbids you to marry an unbeliever or to give your children in marriage to an unbeliever. It's true throughout the whole Bible. God forbids it. Now I suspect you either love or hate this subject. Most everyone does. But the challenge is clear. One way or the other, what will you do about it? My fear is that nothing changes. That's exactly what happened in Nehemiah's day. He taught the word back in chapter 10. God owns our families. And the people made a binding agreement took a solemn oath not to intermarry with the, with the nations, the pagans around them, the unbelievers. Then Nehemiah went away for a few years, and when he returned, what did he hear? He heard the grandchildren of his old friends speaking foreign languages. And they're sounding just like the pagan nations around them because their daddy had married a foreign woman from Ashdod or Ammon or wherever. You see what happened here? They understood the word of God. They vowed to obey the word of God. They just never got around to it. And so their children grew up, seeing no distinction between themselves and the people around them who didn't believe in the Lord. And then one day, that cute little Moabite girl stole Jacob's heart away. Or that guy from the wealthy Canaanite family took a liking to little Abigail. And daddy just didn't have the guts to say no. And folks, we're no different. Unless you confront these issues and make biblical distinctions early on, your grandchildren could also be cute little unbelieving pagans who see nothing strange 
about not being a Christian. We can see how important this is by looking at Nehemiah's response. He sounded like a madman. He's going berserk. He's pulling their hair out. Where's his toleration? His Christian charity? Well, he's not crazy. He just understood that God is jealous for his children. We baptize a baby and we say, this child belongs to the Lord. God is jealous for that child. Even when nobody else seems to care. So why is this such a big deal? Well, verse 27, 6 and 7 give the answer. Marriage is a sacred covenant like our covenant with God himself. It's impossible to enter into a sacred covenant with an unbeliever without compromising our covenant with God. To do so introduces unbelief into the very heart of our life and our family. That's what happened to Solomon, who God had blessed with great wisdom and great promise. But he liked the variety of the women from the other nations. And they brought their idols with them. If you're already married, you're married, for better or worse. But what about your children? God said through Ezekiel, you bore them to me. They are mine. So will you be vigilant to preserve them for him? Or will you sacrifice them on the altar of tolerance and inclusion? Be vigilant. God is jealous. For his children. Let's read the last portion, verse 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Zanbalat the Hornite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defile the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each with his own task. I also made provision for the contributions of wood and designated times for all the first fruits. Remember me with favor, oh my God. One more call to vigilance here. Fifthly, be vigilant. For purity can quickly deteriorate. Purity can quickly deteriorate. Each of these sections has made reference back to something that happened earlier in the book. This section makes reference back, just back to chapter 12, where the genealogies of the priests and Levites was traced to ensure that they were qualified to serve in the temple, to ensure the purity of those offices. But while Nehemiah was gone, that concern for ministerial purity seems to have dissipated. You may remember the name Sanballat, the Horonite. He was Tobias' friend. He was one of Nehemiah's chief opponents during the rebuilding of the walls. And now, according to verse 28, the grandson of the high priest, who would be in line to be the next high priest, has married Sanballat's daughter. This wasn't just an issue of marrying an unbeliever. The purity of the office of the high priest was being compromised. Indeed, verse 29 seems to indicate that, that, that this was indicative, indicative of a general defilement 
of the ministerial offices in Israel. So notice what Nehemiah does about it. He drove Sanballat's son-in-law away. He purified the priests and Levites. They undoubtedly had to go through some ritual cleansing. He made them go back to work, fulfilling their calling. And he made sure that their welfare was provided so that they could give themselves to the work. Let's get back to business here, guys. You see, there's an interdependence here. Faithfulness on the part of the ministers and faithfulness on the part of the people to not neglect the house of the Lord. Those things are inseparably woven together. One affects the other. So whoever you are, be vigilant. For purity can quickly deteriorate. And that applies to the purity of the ministerial offices in the church today as well. And so as the bubbles begin to rise from the bottom of the pot, the frog begins to boil. Once with his powerful legs, he could easily have jumped free. But it was so warm and comfortable. Didn't seem like a threat. Plus he was so sleepy. Maybe tomorrow he would be vigilant. But there would be no tomorrow for the frog is now cooked. Be vigilant, God's enemies never quit. Be vigilant, God's work easily gets neglected. Be vigilant, God still owns your time. Be vigilant, God is jealous for his children. Be vigilant, purity easily deteriorates. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we can all find ourselves and our weaknesses somewhere here. For one thing that we tend to be is a tolerant and easy to go along with things, not vigilant at all. So speak to us at our point of need, we pray. We might walk with you faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.